those of you who like type A's out there who like to know where we're going, I'll tell you. Uh, we're going to talk about good and bad endings. We're going to talk about Bruce Willis's Die Hard movies, all six of them. We're going to talk about the power of the resurrection, and we're going to talk about an invitation to go find Jesus in Galilee. Will you pray with me? God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. And so God, we ask that you would send your spirit now to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. Amen. Amen. All right, has anyone ever read a great novel or seen a movie that you thought just had a terrible ending? All right? Does any, I'm just curious, does anything come to mind? A movie? Huh? Okay. Any others? Anyone see that, what was it, the Cloverfield Lane one? That was like a movie about an abduction that turned into an alien thing? Um, anyway, that was the first one that came to my mind. And so I was thinking about endings when I looked at today's text. It's been said that nearly every film or book critic that the ending is by far the most important thing. It's the most important part of the story. And endings do actually a few really important things. They resolve conflict. They kind of conclude the story's plot. It's the ending that is the thing that makes a story a story. Without it, you just have this series of events. It's also the section that gives uh, the story meaning. And so a story without a proper ending is really unsatisfying. If there's anything more annoying than a cliffhanger, right? And so people generally can't stand cliffhangers because you feel like you're being set up and you are being set up for sequel after sequel after sequel, which is what reminded me of Bruce Willis's <laughs> Die Hard movies, all right? So you have Die Hard 1, which is credited as actually being one of the greatest action films of all time. But did we really need five more of them? That was my question. <laughs> Like, you have Die Hard 2. These are great titles. Listen to these. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Ooh, this is my favorite. Uh, Live Free or Die Hard. <laughs> it's a great title. Um, what was the other one? A Good Day to Die Hard. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. That's it. And so this is the most interesting piece right here. Did you know that a Die Hard Christmas is actually coming? <laughs> it's not a joke. Can you imagine a Die Hard Christmas? That's just going to warm my heart. Um, so here's what I'm, this is the title that I'm looking forward to the most. The, this is the title. I really want to see this. Die the Hardest. Because hopefully that will end the whole thing. Now, think about it like this. If you were foolish enough to take a family of four to all six Die Hard movies... And each person got a popcorn and a Coke, all right? You just dropped 700 bucks and gave Bruce Willis $700. If you had gone to Sinopolis, that would have been over 1000 all right? All because they didn't know how to or they didn't want to end their first movie. Since we're on the subject, I can't resist. Why does Bruce Willis keep making terrible action movies? Anybody? Because old habits... Die hard. Die hard. Die hard. Die hard. All right. <laughs> I just ruined myself right there. <laughs> Trying to say that the endings are important when it comes to a story. An ending satisfies, it wraps things up in this clear, logical, and meaningful way. Good endings actually they delight us, they move us, they inspire us long after we 
uh, long after we finish watching or reading a story. And so a great example of this, one that came to my mind, was the 1943 classic Casablanca. Any people seen that movie? Do we remember it? Um, we'll see if I actually have this right. I'm hoping I have this right. But in this movie, for the whole time you're watching this movie, until the very final moments, the story is about this really bitter and disillusioned saloon owner trying to win back the love of this woman who's now married to somebody else. But at the very end, Humphrey Bogart's character reveals his true colors, right? He's not this neutral party in the fight between the Nazis and the French. He's this dedicated soldier fighting against fascism. And this guy actually holds off the Germans while sending his former lover and her new husband off to safety. And in the final moments, the movie goes from this like soap opera to this inspiring tribute to fight against worldwide uh, fascism and the fight for freedom. And that, to me, it's like, when I think about that, that's an ending, you know? And that's what makes today's resurrection text a little bit puzzling. We've come to the end of Mark's story. We expect the Gospel of Mark. We expect this resolution of conflict. We expect to have our questions answered. Um, we expect to find meaning at the end of the story, and we do, and we will find meaning, but maybe it's not exactly... Uh, the way that most of us would have expected. Not neatly tied up in this beautiful package with a bow around it, not the typical Hollywood ending. Mark's ending, actually, when I read it, it raised more questions than it answered. So here we go. We're going to take a look at it. Mark's ending, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out, fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. And so Mark's gospel actually began with incredible promise. These are the words. Mark's gospel begins, began with these words. It says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is an opening line. It sets the stage for the next 16 chapters. And then we come to the end of the story of the good news, and we read this. So they went out fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Like, if this were Die Hard 1, we wouldn't have anything to worry about, because there'd be five more sequels coming behind it to try to resolve the issue. Mark's Gospel is not a Bruce Willis movie, thank God. The last word, think about this, the last word of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in Mark's Gospel is the word afraid. Surprising, is it? That surprise you? Surprises me. Not the Casablanca kind of flair. And so here are the things that we know. 
Mark is a very, very skilled writer, as highly skilled as you could find in the ancient world. Three of the women that were at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified are present in Mark's ending. Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Jesus' mother, Mary. These women saw where Jesus was buried. They watched as the very large stone was rolled across the tomb's entrance. Now, due to Sabbath restrictions, they didn't have time to properly apply the burial spices for Jesus' interment. So that job actually had to wait until the conclusion of the Sabbath day. So these three faithful women, they go to Jesus' tomb to complete the process of burial. They expected to find what every person in human history up to this day expected to find when they entered a tomb. They were not going there expecting resurrection. When everyone else had fallen away, these faithful women, all four Gospels record this, that these faithful women stood immovably by Jesus in his life and in his death. It got me thinking, where are the great crowds and the admirers of Palm Sunday that we talked about last week? Where are these people now? Where's the rest of Jesus' family? Where are his disciples? Specifically, where is Peter? And you have to ask, has this movement that Jesus started been reduced to these few faithful women? From Mark's point of view, the answer is absolutely yes. These are the ones that have stood by him all the way. And so they make their way to the tomb. They're worried about the weight of the stone and how in the world they would roll it away. And so the presence of these incredible women is actually of huge significance. Sorry. Have you read that yet? You should. Um, It's actually not a part of my sermon, so you can just read it. Um, I thought it was really funny. The presence of these women is really important. And this is a fair... can't be overstated. If Mark is going to try to make up a story about resurrection, he's not going to do it like this. And there's a really good reason why. First century Judaism did not accept the testimony of women. This is a really important point. And yet, here they are. These faithful women at the tomb, they're showing us that Mark is actually attempting to give us a historical eyewitness account, not trying to make something up. And so while the male disciples, they're in hiding. We don't even know where they are, right? The gospel is given to these faithful women. I personally think this is brilliant. They arrive at the tomb, they get the surprise of their life, this large stone covering the tomb's entrance, it's already rolled away. There's a young man said to be a messenger of God that tells these terrified women not to be alarmed. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) The Greek word for alarmed is actually a little bit important because it kind of carries a couple different ideas. Wonder and fear, it carries this astonishment and awe all within this one word. And so the young man there, of course, knows that these women are looking for Jesus who have been crucified. But just how matter-of-factly what the angel says, Jesus has been raised, like he's not here. It's almost like he's like, you just missed him, you know? And so the message of the angel, this is the gospel. This is the Easter proclamation. The message is the good news that Jesus has been raised. And so the gospel's first preached from an empty tomb, but for a very specific reason. They are to go and share. Go and share. Two words. They're to go and share this news with the disciples 
and Peter. You ever ask yourself why Peter is the only one singled out, called out by name? I think there's a good reason for it. Maybe Peter is named because he's the guy more than anyone else who needed to hear Jesus' good news. Why? Imagine the guilt. Imagine the shame that Peter was experiencing. Perhaps Jesus' closest friend, and sadly, despite all the incredible accomplishments of this man's life, he's best known for one thing. Anybody? Denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three different times. Denying that he didn't even know his best friend in the world. That hurts. The depths of Peter's despair after he realizes what he had become had to be nearly unbearable for him. I'm sure he must have felt at least in part responsible for the death of the Lord. And so all he can think about is his denial and his behavior that was driving this shame that he must have been experiencing. He sees himself as a denier. Those around him saw him as a denier. We look at him and we see him as a denier, but here's the gospel message that was given to the angel that was given for Peter specifically. Jesus doesn't see Peter as a denier. This is really important. The angel's saying something like this. Go and tell Peter that his sin no longer defines him. His sin does not define who he is. Denier does not define who he is because Jesus has been raised. One of the great marks of our Easter God is the lifting of shame. One of my biggest modern-day heroes, Father Greg Boyle, the Homeboy Industries guy, he says uh, something that I've actually always really liked. He said that maybe we can see our truest selves when we're on the receiving end of tenderness, mercy, and forgiveness. And this is exactly what Jesus wants for Peter, right? To see himself for who he really is in light of the resurrection which changes everything. So these two words, and Peter, when I was reading the story again, they just leapt off the page. To me, this means that this is just an incredible thought. This means that when Jesus was raised, he actually had Peter on his mind. Does that kind of blow anybody else away? When Jesus is raised, he actually has this one guy who needs the gospel more than anybody. He has Peter on his mind. And so you get to thinking, right, if the grace of the resurrected Lord includes a guy like Peter, a denier, a traitor, then it includes all of us who know and understand that we too have failed, that we too have fallen short, that we too have even denied. And so we too, we have to think, right, we're no longer defined by our sin, but like Peter, we're extended this tenderness, this mercy, this forgiveness for all the ways in which we've gotten life wrong. And so in light of the resurrection, we're invited to see ourselves as Christ sees us, as beloved sons and daughters. While judgment never gets past behavior, grace lifts shame. That's important. Judgment never gets past behavior, but grace actually lifts shame. And that is what is meant by those two simple words, and Peter. All of that, just for man Peter. So we're left with the question, where has Jesus gone, and why has he left? And so the answer is that Jesus has gone on a business trip to Galilee. The women had just missed him, but he had such pressing business 
that he couldn't even hang around for a few more moments for the women to arrive. He's already gone ahead of them to Galilee. And there is where he tells that his disciples will meet him. And the question you should ask is, why Galilee? And here's what I think is going on. I think that Mark actually uses Galilee as this kind of clever reframing device to reframe the whole gospel that he's written in light of the cross and the empty tomb. So Galilee, if we remember, this is where it all began, ministering out of Peter and Andrew's home. Galilee was the place where Jesus had first taught and healed with authority. But you might also remember Galilee was also the place, if you've been with us through Lent, it's also the place where Jesus was almost always misunderstood. And so the disciples, even though Jesus told them multiple times that he came to suffer and to die and to rise, the disciples never get it. But this time, this is what's going on, but this time, when they see Jesus in Galilee, they're finally going to get it. This is exactly what I think Mark is trying to do. And so there's this Bible scholar, Tom Long, who says that Mark's uh, sending of the disciples to Galilee is actually an invitation to take our Bibles, right? So I'm going to take mine. And this is his invitation. So we take it, we're on Mark 16. And he actually wants us to turn back those pages all the way to Mark chapter 1. And he wants us to reread it all, 1 through 16, in light of the empty tomb and the resurrection. To reread all the teachings of Jesus, all the miracles and healings of Jesus, um, all in light of the empty tomb. It's like this clever trick of a writer to get you to go back to the very beginning and reread it in light of this one most important thing, the thing that changes the whole story. And so the women, they're left at the tomb, entrusted with the gospel message. And they're given this mission to go and share the good news and they flee the tomb exactly in the same way that they arrived, in fear. And so I see Mark's ending like this. I see it as an invitation that's being extended to each one of us, just like it was to the disciples, to go to Galilee where we will find Jesus. The resurrected Christ, this is, this is really important to a missional church like us. This is something we strongly believe, and we see it right here in the resurrection text, that Jesus is out there. Right? Not contained within the walls that we call our churches. Jesus is already out there ahead of us, on mission, attending to urgent business. And what a thought that Christ asks, beckons, invites us to go and meet him out there in the world where he's already at work, right now extending this tenderness, this forgiveness, this mercy to a world of Peter's that desperately need to hear and experience these things. And so maybe Mark's ending is still being written by people like you and like me, people who accept this invitation to go to Galilee, people who follow Jesus out into the world, people that are willing to extend this kind of tenderness and mercy and forgiveness. All of this is possible only because he has been raised. There's a story uh, about this curmudgeon guy who died centuries ago in Italy. He was a very anti-Christian kind of a guy. And so he was strongly against Christianity, but the thing about this guy is he was also a little bit afraid of it. And so he said that when he died, he wanted a gigantic stone slab put over the top of his grave. 
All right? Just in case there was a resurrection. And so he had inscribed on the stone, I don't believe in, I don't want to be resurrected from the dead because I don't believe in it, right? And he scribbles this, has it written on this giant stone, he places it over him. And a funny thing happened, a little acorn must have fallen into his grave when he was buried. And a hundred years later, this acorn turns into this towering, beautiful oak tree that comes up through the ground, splits this giant slab into tiny little pieces. And the minister looks at it and says, if an acorn, which has the biological, the power of biological life in it, can split a stone of this magnitude, imagine what God's resurrection power can do in the life of a person. The power of the resurrection, it lifts our guilt and shame. It allows us to see ourselves the way that Jesus sees us, and it invites us to join Christ in his important work of sharing the good news with others, in word and in deed. Now, I have no idea what Bruce Willis would think of this ending, but personally, I love it. I think it's full of hope. I think it's full of wonder. I think it's full of possibility. And it gives each of us an important part to play when we accept Christ's invitation to go to Galilee. So let's get going. Are you with me? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, your power and grace are astounding. Your love for this world is unending. And so God, in the power of the empty tomb, you lift our guilt and shame. You see us. For who we really are, you help us to see ourselves like you see us, as forgiven people. And God, you invite us to join with you in sharing the good news with others. And so we ask for the courage to respond to your invitation with generosity. Amen. Amen.